Hello, and welcome to the No Good Poetry Podcast. Each week we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of poetry. This is episode 96 with... Joseph Makos and... Joseph Bievenu. This is the good, bad, and the ugly, isn't it? Some ugly shit out there, kids. Let's make the world safer for poetry. We're in the back bar today. Yeah, we're, we are, we are. You know, I, I think, I don't know if we talked about how the archive is being transferred, but I think it actually is making for some nice acoustics back here because we have all these newspapers insulating yeah. the sound. It does change the sound. My landlord noted that. <laughs> Changes the sound of the, the chamber here. Um, but we have a friend in town, uh, an old friend from, uh, from the Rust Belt. And uh, he's traveling, doing doing a southern sweep here in the winter, basically, and uh, coming through and doing some lectures and some presentations and showing some projects that he's working on and the book that he's been working on for the past three years. Traveled. I want to know. One of my questions is how many miles? How many? How many miles? I know. I know. There's how many prints? How many miles? This is a project that. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll make for some days some incredible, informative, and interesting infographics. <laughs> um, we have in the studio here today uh, Chris Fritton, the itinerant printer. Hello. Welcome, Chris. Glad to be here. It's actually great to have you, man. <laughs> it's, it's, good been, to, it's good to be back. Yeah, it's good, it's good to have you back. Um, I, think like, uh, I think like it's nice because like our, our projects have both expanded. You know, and then here we are on the other side of that. Yeah. Yeah. And when I enter a project and I think it's only going to take a year and then all of a sudden it's four years later, you know. I yeah. Really, uh, you realize how protracted they can become, but I don't know. A lot of times the project has to really match the scale of its content. Like, that's what I think. But also maybe, like, when you headed out on that quest, maybe you didn't realize there were so many printers and maybe, or like, you know what I mean? Maybe you never so know how I don't many know printers that, uh, you really are going to run into, right? That's true. I don't know that all of our listeners know what your itinerant printer project is. Yeah, I should actually catch everybody up on it. So uh, for the last four years, I've been doing this project called the Itinerant Printer, where I travel around the U.S. and Canada visiting different letterpress print shops. And the only thing I brought on the road with me was paper and ink. So I'd work exclusively from what they had in their collections, whether it was wood type, metal type, border, ornament, and I'd produce postcards and poster-sized pieces all along the way. To date, I've visited 160 shops or more, uh, covered about 60,000 miles on the road, and I've made somewhere between 20,000 and 25,000 prints. I've visited all 48 contiguous states, never made it to Alaska or Hawaii, but I've visited four Canadian provinces too. Just wrapped the whole thing up with this monster, what I call my seven-pound baby. It's a coffee table book. And it features all the people and places and prints along the way. It's 1,500 photos and about 130,000 words. So that's really wow. sort of like the road diary of everything. Wow. That's remarkable. It really is remarkable. Um, if you ever want to go to Alaska or Hawaii, I got people in both places. Good. So let's talk. Yeah. The, the, I tried to look for one in Alaska. There is a few that I know of in Hawaii, but the one in Alaska seemed like it closed up in 2012, so we'll talk. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's definitely something there. Um, 
Well, welcome back to New Orleans. Uh, you've, you've dropped in in carnival season. Uh, have you been down here for carnival season before? I was last year, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, it wait, happened, you were down yeah, here Yeah, it happened year. at the exact same time. Okay. It was really strange. Uh, I think almost three times in a row now. Uh, never actually here for Mardi Gras, but I'm here within a couple of weeks, like, leading up to it, you know. Sometimes it can be more intense than Mardi Gras. Well, I think I crew to Vu tomorrow. I mean, Saturday, that's pretty good. That's yeah. a good one to catch. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> today, yeah. Right. Is that we're going to play that time warp game? Oh, yeah, today. I guess this will be it's Saturday like when you're listening to this. <laughs> it's like Scooby-Doo over here. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, man. So you come in and you use these, uh, these, uh, these shapes and sizes and, 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 and letters and type, and it's, it's pretty remarkable, huh, seeing all the different pieces that people have in their shops. I think and that, yeah, I mean... The whole thing is about creativity within constraint, right? Like all letterpress printing is because you're often working with movable type and you have all these individual blocks and you're trying to pull them together into a form for printing. So what I do when I walk into the places is design on the fly. I start pulling open all the type cases. I look for things that are of interest. I ask questions about them, you know, like, do you use this all the time? Have you ever used this? And then I'll throw something on the press, and usually within that sort of 24-hour, 48-hour window that I'm in a place, have to design something that's compelling, I hope, and print it. Um, I would say at this point in time, I've been looking at it recently, it's about a 20% failure rate. <laughs> I'd say, like, four out of five <laughs> prints that I make have been halfway decent, you know, and then other ones I just uh, didn't have the time or maybe didn't pick the right elements. So... There's a humbling sort of side of it, too, um, working under, uh, you know, sort of the gun of time and then having to work with other people's equipment and work with all those other elements that I've never seen before. So there's a challenge that's inbuilt, you know, into what I'm doing. So I'm kind of curious how much, how great is the variation of, like, the kinds of type elements and the things people have in it's, their shops? It's wild, and it varies by region, too. This is something that's really crazy. Um, so when you're down south, like, let's take wood type for an example. Wood type at this point has become pretty rare. Um, but when you're around the Great Lakes region in the northeast, um, when someone says, I don't have a lot of wood type, they might have five cabinets, which is about 100 cases or 100 drawers. And then when you get down south and somebody says, I really don't have much wood type, they might have like three drawers, three cases of it. And it's the spectrum is completely different. And I've looked into hmm. this a lot historically, and it's super fascinating because what you're essentially looking at is a South um, that never really fully recovered, even after Reconstruction, after the Civil War. And by the time they had, uh, we'd reached the time when offset printing and other modes of printing had taken over. So you'd never rebuild your letterpress printing capabilities. Yeah, yeah. So when all those things were destroyed, you know, mostly during the war, never rebuilt, and that's what creates that difference. And also just the economic difference where it was like the Great Lakes area in the Northeast were always the economic powerhouses and the industrial powerhouses. And along with that came all the advertising, and along with that came all the printing. And that's why there's so much more up there. So I would see that. And then, of course, like stylistically, if I'm in Florida, it's all like dolphins and palm trees, you know, <laughs> if I find cuts or image blocks. And then when I'm in California, the same thing. Or when you're in Texas, it's like all cowboys. So there's like these regional kind of yeah, like, yeah. you know, regional imagery comes up a lot. And then when I get up uh, by the Great Lakes, it's all ships and grain elevators and things like that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean... Yeah, there, there, but there's got to be, there, there is some stuff that you do see in every shop, you know, you do see like all those like union bugs and or like, like all those like uh, 
motor car companies and oil company little bugs and all that stuff. There, there's sets of that stuff all around. Absolutely. So when those bigger companies like American Type Founders and stuff, they had catalogs and all the printers were ordering sort of these little, what we would consider clip art now cuts, right? So uh, yeah, you got yeah. a little duck and a little dog and I'll be, you know, 2,000 miles away and I'll see that same little dog <laughs> somewhere. And I think that uh, there's one thing that I find in all kinds of print shops that I always found really strange in terms of imagery, but it makes sense when you think about it, and it was teeth. So you'll find like an image there would be a layout for dentist to mark where your cavities were. Uh, so okay. when I found the first couple ones of these blocks, I was like, whoa, this is crazy. <laughs> and then I got to the next shop and there'd be like another set of teeth. And I get to the next shop and there'd be another set of teeth. And then I was like, well, there was a dentist in every town, right? So you usually find these weird teeth blocks. No, that makes sense. But yeah, but you don't think about that, right? right. Like, what, like how did you do that? Yep back then right someone had to print the absolutely charge for the teeth <laughs> and actually and actually did print with a lot of those teeth. i made a few postcards and stuff when i was out in new mexico so i think that it's um always fun to be able to use those things that are sort of common to everybody's experience too yeah know? yeah 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 the found all the found stuff yeah i mean i have to say the wood type you know um i'm just thinking of like i don't know how di how dip of a dive that you dug into into zygos wood type or like how recently but man they have like some really good stuff they have some all sorts of sizes like of wood type like even stuff that you know it's like that crossover period where it's like i've seen some pretty pretty big uh, uh, uh metal type you know that comes pretty big sometimes you know but like it's that crossover period where like the wood type starts to get small and you get some like really ornate small wood type you know even tinier stuff that's like, it's like that period, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean? It's that there, crossover. There is, like, there's this transitional period and, uh, you know, sort of mid to late 1800s when wood type really comes into vogue and it's also cheaper to produce and they start using it for headlining on newspapers and book covers and all these other things and huge advertising posters. And you're right, so metal type got bigger and bigger and bigger and heavier and heavier and heavier and then all of a sudden you transition to wood type and they start thinking well maybe we can make that even smaller so you get down to you know two line wood type which is like a third of an inch and some of it's beautiful and decorative so a lot of what I was doing as I was traveling around was trying to index what those places had in their shops as well as the time that I spent there so the postcards and posters act both ways they're an index of my time they're an index of what those shops have and sometimes um, when there wasn't necessarily some visually compelling elements I would just make what were called type specimens and I would just line up a bunch of amazing typefaces and this is one of my favorite things to do because normally you just choose a series of words um, to feature different letters and those words become completely incongruous and they make their own like beautiful poetry so you'd see these old specimen sheets and it would be like window pane elephant lake erie and you have no idea why they chose those things but then when you look into it it's because they wanted to showcase the r or they wanted to showcase the p of this specific font and i've made postcards and post uh, poster size pieces that feature those sort of um kind of poems on the fly and I always think about the older printers when they were laying out these specimen books. And it's like, I know they were having fun with it. Like, they had to be, because some of them are just ridiculously humorous. And then sometimes they're even thematic. Like, you'll see them, and it'll say, like, Ice Age. And then it'll say, Yeti. And then it'll say, and you're kind of like, somebody, was, <laughs> somebody knew what they were doing, you know. Um, but I think that that's probably one of the coolest things um, still 
in the simplest way. So if I get stuck and I have no idea what to make, I can just kind of crank out the specimen sheet, which becomes this weird kind of uh, really gonzo poem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a neat. That's a neat thing to do. I've definitely done that. I've definitely lined up, lined up some type and made some made some type sheets just to just to look at take a look at uh, the character and some block type, and uh, it'll t definitely tell you something. It'll definitely you know when you pull a couple pull a couple off that show you some information on the page that you didn't see when you're seeing the type looking back at you. Some yeah. of, some of it's nice like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it feels looking back different. at you. It does. Though. I think that Joseph's right in this strange way, where it's like having the uh, having the type sit in the case is uh, it can be really, really different than when it's printed, especially when there are these decorative typefaces. Like sometimes it'll have a drop shadow, or sometimes maybe the whole typeface consists of nothing but a drop shadow that suggests the letter form. Mm. So it's completely deconstructed, but it's supposed to be there, and when you're looking at it in the case, it might look like nothing. And then you print it on the page, and there's this moment where you're like, oh, oh, that's what it's supposed to be. Like, I get it now, you know? Um, there's some reason, uh, sometimes you just can't conceive of it when you're looking at the block as opposed to, you know, when it finally hits the page. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I want to, I want to, uh, did, did you run into, uh, I, I know there's a few shops out there who have that, like, um, two-color type. Oh yeah. So any of these, there was bichromatic fonts and trichromatic fonts. There were three color ones. Nice. So you would have these two separate blocks. You would print the first one and you would print the second one right over top of it. And what you end up with is um, type that appears to be three colors. And then if you had three separate blocks, it'll appear to be four colors. So as you layer those colors, you also get some color mixing. Um, and when you're working with those beautiful old pieces, most of that's from the late 1800s and early 1900s. There's one company that just recently remade it called Virgin Wood Type out of Rochester, New York. But um, that kind of stands alone. A lot of times if oh, I yeah. found those chromatic wood types, I wasn't going to try to do anything clever with them. It's like you just print them. You yeah. Know, and they're just beautiful unto themselves. Because I think that a lot of the work that I do doesn't look like traditional letterpress printing, and often I'll abstract things. My whole background... Uh, really, it was in visual poetry, so a lot of text-heavy art. So when I'm doing letterpress printing, it's really easy for me to fall back on that and deconstructing and reconstructing letter forms, using their geometries and color to create new shapes. Like, that's easy stuff for me to do. Um, but with that chromatic wood type and things like that, I would just be like, stands alone, leave it alone, <laughs> you know? No, I mean, uh, I'd love to use that to do like signage in a in a re in a, like in like a boutique or a restaurant or something. That'd be so cool to like use a bunch of that stuff for stuff like that. You know, what I was mean? its original use mostly it's for probably, for like titling on fancy things or yeah, something? Yeah, definitely, almost yeah. always advertising. You'd see it was really big. Um, it would rarely ever even be used in a newspaper or anything. It's far too decorative. So I mean, you're looking at what most people, if you're trying to envision this since we're technically on the radio here. Um, it's like a carnival font, you know, in that way when you see it and you're just kind of like, oh, this calls up Barnum and Bailey, like okay. in my head, like that sort of stuff. Um, so a lot of carnival posters, who knows what else, wrestling posters, stuff like that. But uh, I think that its heyday kind of stood somewhere between like 1880 and the 1920s or 30s and then stuff just started to shift away from that. Yeah. Pretty cool. That is pretty cool. <laughs> Yeah, movie poster stuff where they would print like a, when they were print like a two color thing, and then it would be like a standard poster that then then another shop would take and Absolutely. put in their and put in their black. So 
or, was just at you know. this place, yeah, uh, in Muncie, Indiana. It's called Tribune Showprint, and it's actually the oldest continuously operating print shop in the U.S. Um, everybody thinks that it's Hat Show in Nashville, but Tribune's actually a year older. And um, they have what were called shells, and all these shells are where they print sort of the general information, like auto races. And then they have imagery, and it might be two or three colors. And then the whole rest of the poster, what we would call a show card, <laughs> is blank. And then you'd fill in your Just information. Put in that well, information later, you know, yeah. Lancaster, yeah. Pennsylvania, <laughs> August 12th, like blah, blah, blah. And it's like, so you would be able to walk into one of these show card or poster shops, and they'd have them all laid out. There'd be ones for basketball and football and auto races and motorcycle races and wrestling and carnivals. And it was so cool to see all those. So they <clears> still have these. That's and they neat, have this yeah. incredible archive. So it was like I was posting pictures of it. And... Uh, it's a lot of times what they were, they were hand illustrated, then they were hand painted with gouache, and then from there they were turned into plates for letterpress printing. So huh. they all came from, you know, someone's original, usually an anonymous artist at that point, someone's illustrations. That's pretty neat. Yeah, and I mean, I've, I've wow. noticed that in some of those old posters, but I didn't know how that actually worked, how it's the same. Yeah. And in very different areas, even, you yep. know, they're all using that same generic. It really is, you know. <laughs> and it's like, so if you were within, say, make 100 miles of some place and uh, you had a carnival and they had a carnival, you'd, you'd probably had the same shell. You'd probably use the but same poster. Like, okay, but like, okay, let's, let's like relate this right to today, dude. It's like, a, it's like taking a frame on your Facebook photo, well, right? Kind of, and, yeah. and it's like, it's like having your. Dude, there's a ton of digital equivalences. A Snapchat filter is essentially like in a digital equivalent of having a shell where it's just like your face goes in and then it has the dog ears on it but it's the same dog ears everybody but, else gets. but it's also but what it's really like is like when you see those like someone downloads like a photoshop template or something because yes. oh. they're like yeah they're like we well, don't want to hire a graphic designer we're just going to download this yeah. family christmas and we'll card just template. plug in our information you know what i always like to call the five dollar logo is oh, like where yeah, it happens yeah. too, you know, and it's like, and it's just round and the text is laid in there. And yeah, I think that's the same thing. We could think of those as templates or shells in that same way. Um, and at some point, let's be fair though about and it. And some of them are nice, nicely are nice, done. And yeah. also someone designed them. So again, yeah. it was like, there was this anonymous character behind it, just like there was a long time ago, but we're probably never going to know their name. Yeah, That's and funny. they vary in quality like anything else. Some yeah, of them absolutely. are some of them are impressive. You're like that, yeah. like especially when you're thinking that you're having to design something where you're leaving a space for yeah. something. Some of them are really well done, but some of them are hack jobs. But that's how it goes, you know. I want to go set up my table out on Royal Street next to the Typer Poets, and I want, I want a sign that says ten dollar logo, <laughs> and you can just sketch it out really quick and just be like, you should just oh, have pre-made logos and just pull it out of a pile. Just be obvious about it. <laughs> You're yeah. like, ah, this one. I think that's the way it would work, where it's like yeah. you'd have it set up, and there'd be a round one here, and there'd be a teardrop-shaped one here, and there'd be a flat kind of parallel one here, and you'd be like, well, which one? And then you just scribble the name of their company. Yeah, you just like, drop in the, the text in. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Seems totally possible to me. $10 logo. <laughs> wow. Uh, so maybe relating more to... The topic of our show. How did you get into? How did you get into printing in the first place? Well, I did talk a little bit about visual poetry, but uh, I actually got my start way back in the '80s and '90s, making a lot of zines, um, just about punk rock and skateboarding. And just like anybody else, then I was cut and pasting everything. I was xeroxing at Kinko's and I was stapling it together. And 
a little bit later I learned how to screen print and I would do things like screen print the cover of zines and then I would still digitally print the inside. But there was something about it that just didn't really speak to me. I'm not illustrative by nature. I can't draw at all. So screen printing wasn't really the greatest medium for me. But when I found letterpress printing, that's when I knew that I'd found sort of the perfect medium. There was something about setting type. When you're working with movable type, it's every letter in every word in every sentence in every stanza and you're you're building the language physically it's sort of the architecture of language that you're throwing together and when i did that i was just like oh yeah this is me like this speaks to me because i'd always seen the parallels between language and architecture as well and i started making my own poetry chapbooks and first i would just do the covers like we talked about and then a little bit later I started printing the entire book, and then I learned how to hard case books and do like what we call fine art editions and stuff like that, or fine press printing. And then I learned alternative bindings and things like that. Uh, after being able to do that, I started running or was the studio director at a place called the Western New York Book Arts Center, and that's in downtown Buffalo where I'm from, and we would teach people how to letterpress print or screen print or bind books, and then they could rent studio time to work on their own projects. So it wasn't until I started running the Book Arts Center that I got to move into large-scale design. And then I was doing posters for gig, uh, like gig band, gig posters for bands and things yeah, like that, yeah. or event posters, or, you know. Um, but I had never really uh, done that. I was always working small-scale with the books and other things. So it was my background um, really in poetics um, entirely. I don't have any background in art or design that led me into letterpress printing, and then letterpress printing led me to design and the other things that I do now. Well, that makes sense. I mean, there's a lot of connection between, I think, if you're going to look at, I mean, I think the way that, like, people who are dealing with typography look at language and the way that poets look at language, there's a lot of intersection there, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a long tradition of all kinds of poets owning their own presses. Sylvia Plath, um, diarist, Anna Eisenin, you know, people like that actually had their own presses. And I was, it was really interesting. I was reading something about Anna Eisenin the other day that felt very parallel to what I do. Um, a lot of these people would use the time they were typesetting their poems or their entries or the pages of their book to edit you edit right there out of the typecase. And it's because you're spending so much time with the language and with the words, you really start to pare it down to its bare essentials. And you also know whether or not something's garbage. If I've spent three or four minutes staring at a line, <laughs> I know you know, whether or not that word was the right word. It's very different um, because it gives you a little more duration with the words than it would if you were just clicking away, you know, on the computer. And you oh, just, yeah, that makes you, sense. You can just hit delete or you can just kind of like control Z, bring it there, bring it back. But when you're setting it right there in your hand. Um, that I mean, that's almost just thinking of that as a writer. That's almost horrifying in some way <laughs> to think about setting the type of your own poetry. <laughs> It is, and there is a part where it's like you get you. I would I used like to use the phrase you get a little sick of yourself, where it's like you know four lines in you're just like, is any of this any good, you know? Because you don't usually sit with something that long, um, so you get the opportunity, you know, when you're a letterpress printer that's working with your own poetry or anybody else's to sit with it for quite a while. I've been lucky to work with um, a lot of people and, and help create their artist books. Um, Carl Dennis 
was a Pulitzer Prize winning poet that was professor uh, at the University of Buffalo where I went and I got to work with Richard Tuttle, two um, really amazing uh, American minimalist artist and he had never made a book and he came to my friend Richard Kegler and I at uh, the Western New York Book Arts Center and we made this great little eight page almost like prayer book out of his poems and his imagery so there's been opportunities to spend that long with other people's work too you know nice, which nice. is definitely kind of interesting to um, you, because you can't change it Right? We yeah, just talked about how yeah. I was sitting there and for my own poem, it's like I'd be like, oh, this is terrible, and I'd take it out. But you get halfway through Carl Dennis's poem, and you're not taking anything out because he's already edited it. So. Well, and you probably come up with a special relationship to those poems. Because who else has <laughs> said it in type, probably? Or, yeah. Yeah. And I'll yeah. tell you, it is a great path to memorization because when you sit with something that long, it's like three weeks later, you'll find it rattling around in your head still. It doesn't go anywhere. So in that way, almost all the poems, um, I usually write poems as a single unit. So even if it's an entire book, it's a single poem, just broken up into sections. Um, a lot of times when I give readings now, almost all my poems are memorized in a way because they were typeset before that. That's good. That's a nice, easy way to memorize things. Yeah. yeah. It's sort of like an ancillary benefit. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Try to typeset in another language then. Yeah, then in we I think we've probably all read the accounts of how a long time ago a lot of the typesetters would be setting books and things in a different language. So it's like you might have a bunch of guys that were native German speakers, but they get a manuscript and the manuscript's entirely in English and they're just setting someone's English manuscript. Man, that must so, be so hard. <laughs> so you're setting directly from that manuscript just what you see on the page. So if there's a typo on the page you're gonna repeat the typo because you never know. Yeah, never uh, well, maybe it'd be harder. Maybe it'd be faster. I don't know. Because you've got to kind of think backwards anyway. Maybe it's easier if it's something you don't understand in some ways. Right? You know what it reminds me of, too, is uh, a lot of the people that are Scrabble champions now, like in the Scrabble world. Um, yeah, they, they don't know what the words mean. They just, they're they're yeah. often not native English speakers. And it's like what they've done is memorize, you know, the 800,000 words in the dictionary. And, and that's, that's even the people who speak English, so that's mostly what you're doing. Because there's all yeah. these words, like, they don't care what it means. It's like you just you need right. to be able to put the word down, you know? I mean, <laughs> meaning falls to the wayside and this is super interesting in terms of like a conversation about poetry it's like whether or not the word fits and if meaning just kind of falls to the side huh. you know? um, and I think that probably happened a lot more when rhyme schemes were prevalent right where it's just sort of like does this word rhyme I don't really care what it means right now I just need to squeeze something in but here but there's value in that too right I mean yeah. that's yeah because that's that creativity within constraint you know well, and it's also, that's what's, I mean, like, back to what you're talking about, like, how you recognize the similarity between architecture and printing to begin with. And, like, yeah, I mean, there, that's the interesting thing about language, right? It's got all these different aspects. And that's one that maybe I think people forget about. I mean, not, I mean, but, you know, the average person, you're not thinking about the architectural properties of language most of the time, right? It's pretty rare, probably. Right. You're <laughs> but at the end of the day, yeah, just like in architecture, you're probably looking for the brick that fits. You know? Yeah, I think being yeah. a typesetter has informed me in my work a lot. I mean, in 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 my eagerness to take words apart and and move things around, you mm -hmm. know, um, I think like Olson really, you know, was like projective verse was sort of like calling for an explosive page, you mm -hmm. know, for for a boundary breaking page. Yeah, and that's. 
and that's I found comfort in that in in small uh, in small battles fought on the page in in the way I break things in the way I like bring things in and bring things out and provide sort of like a, a column columnar like column read on things and break it down and try to break it open a little bit more is like I think is like related to dissecting language because if you're forming language you're also dissecting it at the same time you know because you're you're pushing your mind into like sort of like the uh, the anagram way of thinking yeah and right which is like code which is like which actually is related to like code writing right and <laughs> I, I, I love thinking about these things too because um, you see all these parallels between language, especially as it was printed, so the visual representation of language, and then certain artistic movements that were trying to break away from that. And as advancements in printing happened, they paralleled those sort of advancements in uh, the art movement. So you look at the Russian constructivists, or you look at the futurists, or even prior to that, you look back at some of the French poets, and they were creating poems on the page that were handwritten that were very difficult to replicate when it came to typeset them and then when you're finally able to um, you know you get that sort of explosion on the page that you're talking about but if you look at the constructivist they were really really eager um, to maintain some sort of order but get away from the grid so when you're letterpress printing almost everything is on the X and Y axis and along come the constructivist and the futurist and all these guys and they want things tipped and pitched and they want them to keystone and get bigger and smaller and it's like and when those things were challenging typesetters and printers, and then once they were able to uh, expand their sort of printing capabilities, you really start to see um, this kind of fever in moving towards that. And I think that was like super interesting to study those parallels. So a lot of times I'm looking at the poets and the writers that were adjacent to the visual artists, um, or were both at the same time, and how their work uh, helped kind of each organically grow in those two different channels, you know. And that goes back to the visual poetry aspects that we were talking about where I look at most of the constructivist work and everything else as just visual poetry. Yeah, it relates yeah. to the publishing aspect of it too because like to go back to the Cubist Poets of Paris and th those guys were doing those crazy editions where it was like one guy made an edition that was 300 and 22 or something because it because together the yeah, size the of the broadside was the was the was the, the, was the height, height of the oh, Eiffel Tower. Why, I'm blanking on his Blaise, name right now. Was it Blaise Centers? Was it? Might have been. I'm not sure about that now. But yeah, I know you're talking. Yeah, it was supposed to be the you could it was the height of the Eiffel Tower, right? Together the, the broadside edition. Yeah, or yeah. like or like but like but there were all this but there was so much play in that er that era. Of like of like crazy chapbooks and Absolutely. weird poster poems and chapbooks and like Picasso would do the annotations of some of them and mm -hmm. you know like and, and do like drop in lettering and stuff so there's so it's like that time period you know it's like and you think about some of the earliest man. days of concrete poetry too um, being able to set something where it's like waves and it is the word waves and it looks like waves the ones that we've all seen. Um, you know, that was really difficult in terms of typesetting early on, too, and people turned to typewriters and other things and typewriter art to create them as well. But I think that uh, 
to think of that as like a springboard, but then think about how things broke loose with people that we know really well, like DA Levy and all these people, and they're like, I'm just going to rubber stamp it. And then you have almost total freedom on the page where you've released yourself from the confines of letterpress printing and you've moved to something else entirely um, that you have uh, a little bit more power over. You can grab the stamp and you can put it anywhere on the page. Yeah, more of like a more of like a, a play on the field, like a virtual text field. Yes. A little bit more of a step in that direction. Absolutely. You know, where it's like master control or using the typewriter or even like honestly the advent of the IBM Selectric changed some things too. Absolutely. Because then you could have you know what I mean? Then you could have like thirty different typefaces, you know, on one machine yeah. and then that changes, you know, your usage and, you know, even, you know, there was even a compositor that they, you know, there was an IBM compositor, yep. you know, where they could actually dial it in and, and create for essentially copy, camera ready copy. They could, they could program it to make a column of type to then put into their camera ready newspaper layout. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then have the photo film ready to produce. And I think that it's actually really interesting to note that there's letterpress printers that are doing something really similar to that now in terms of like what Levy and other people were doing to break away from the grid. Instead of using the press in a traditional way, they're actually just using all the elements of wood type and metal type almost as stamps. And um, they're trained letterpress printers like Kevin Bradley from formerly from Church of Type in California, and now he's back in Asheville, North Carolina, doing a thing called Voodoo Rocket. So what Bradley does now when he's making these monster pieces, some of them are like four foot by eight foot, he's inking up the type, the individual pieces by hand, and then stamping them by hand. So he... Hmm worked on the grid for so long and essentially got sick of it, like we said, and has gone to this more kind of freeform way of producing work. Um, and it's really compelling, but at the end of the day, uh, there's a lot of, it's cool because it creates a lot of conversation about whether or not it's actually letterpress printing or if it's some form of painting or it's really just stamping. Like, what is he doing now? Um, and I found myself well, that's doing good, that. That's good, though. That's interesting. Yeah. Like, you wouldn't think that there is a blurry line between those things, but they're kind of... <laughs> <laughs> there really is. Yeah. No. And the, the old school printers, you know, they're sticklers about it. And I've been working a lot with this too because my work has moved more and more towards abstraction without using any type at all. And sometimes now I'll just use the press itself to make marks on the page. And those mm. marks and those pieces I just like look that like idea. abstract expressionist pieces. And I've been talking about this to students a lot. Um, the parallels are, the strongest parallels and analogies are with painting. So if we uh, really never moved towards using the paintbrush in a different way, we'd probably still be doing a lot of hyper-realistic portraiture from the 1500s and 1600s. And it isn't just because some of the painters chose not to paint a bowl of oranges or a portrait of a king. It's because they actually looked at the paintbrush differently and they said, how else can this thing make a mark? And that's what I'm trying to do sometimes now is like look at the actual press itself and instead of using it to print type, I'll look at that machine and say, how else can this machine make a mark on the page? And that's where I came up with these really abstract works that I leave alone a lot of times now without even printing type on top of them. Um, and then I do call them letterpress prints, and it's provocative because in that way they wouldn't traditionally be, but it starts a conversation about where things are going in the future. I really like that. Well, and that's visual poetry, right? Like that's like, I mean, that's what that is, but I don't, I mean, a lot of, I think maybe just because of the time where visual poetry started being more concerned with the more abstract 
aspect of that, while people did that with more like photocopy technology, and I've never heard of anyone doing that with letterpress. That's a good idea. I yeah. think the people that are doing the most <laughs> interesting work in letterpress printing as I travel around now are using the machines in a new way, and then they're also incorporating um, digital technologies. So they don't think of the digital and the analog as mutually exclusive. They think of them as working hand-in-hand -hand and enhancing one another. So people are using laser cutters and 3D printers, and they're using CNC routers and all these other objects to create blocks for printing or other objects for printing. Um, and, like me, even using alternative materials for printing, anything that I can make the right height for printing on a press, I can print. So you can print bicycle parts, you can print circuit boards, you can print, um, you know, who knows what, records, anything that you can build up to that height. And recently in yeah, Kansas yeah. City at a friend's shop, printing with Legos. So <laughs> if you build Lego blocks up to the right height, you can print with those. Um, and all of that feels still really, really congruent with visual poetry stuff. Yeah, it's like yeah. It's all creativity within constraint. Again, um, the constraints are the height, the constraints are having to use the press and the page, you know, and then how can I make something compelling but f make a way to make it look new or, you know, or take it a different direction. Um, and I think that a lot of the people doing that work too, um, to bring it full circle kind of back to writing, are also have compelling content. You know, it's not just the process. And yeah, yeah. I think that there's a lot of people that like to take that angle on it, and people talk about it all the time, right? Process, process, process. But I'm a big advocate of product, too. I'd like the process to lead to an interesting product. And people like Kevin Bradley that I mentioned um, tells these long, rambling, um, almost like folk stories sometimes. And, just, and if he didn't have that sort of beautiful, intriguing content, I don't think I'd be as compelled by his process either. No, I mean, it's the combination of those things, right? I don't know. It's, it's, Definitely. it's interesting, though. And, and it's fun to try to, like, like some of those things you're talking about, I think part of the fun of it could be looking at that and being like, what was the process here? Like trying to figure that out for yourself. That's such a great point because a lot of the letterpress printing that I'm doing now looks so different than traditional letterpress printing um, that people often look at it and ask uh, how it was made. They will literally just be like, is this a screen print? Is it a litho? Is, is it just a digital print? Like they don't really know. Um, because I think a lot of times people are looking for what, they imagine traditional letterpress printing to be, if you know, hat show print on a Nashville, big, heavy, blocky wood type and big woodcut images like, you know, Willie Nelson and Elvis and who knows what, like concert posters. Um, but the stuff I make looks nothing like that, you know. So if you have that idea in your head um, and then you see something like mine, you're never going to know how it was made. Yeah, yeah. I like the mystery about it. I think that's really cool. No, that's know. part of that's part of what makes it interesting. Yeah, it makes it a little bit deeper dive. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's also you know when you run into these different things and these different quirks of certain presses, you know, and you can you can exploit those things. You can go into a shop and you can say, you know, you can you can instead of looking, you know, sometimes you just you know you see that two color type and you're like, whoa, you know, this is amazing. But then sometimes you're like. Man, the the most amazing thing that I I I think that they have in here is this collection of like twenty five of these wood type that they have like in that that drawer in the bottom mm -hmm. that no one uses. Yeah. 
That's the coolest shit, yeah. right? What was what was always referred to with metal type as the hell box, where it's just like all the random pieces of type that don't go with any of the other typefaces or have now been lost or something, you know? And that, as well as what you mentioned before that I think is really, really super interesting, is this idea of like maybe the glitch. So digitally we would call it the glitch, but you're talking about the idiosyncrasies of the machines. So maybe one of the most compelling things about a print that I made when I was on the road would be the idea that every time I made it, the machine screwed up a little bit. So only that machine will produce that sort of image. And I started to use a lot of that stuff to my advantage. And I think it's really, really amazing to think about um, how you can take what we would imagine to be maybe a, misfunction of the whole thing, you know, um, as an element of it. And I think, in a way, when I talked about the work I was doing as being an index of my time there, it's also an index of that machinery, and if there's something sort of wrong with it. And um, I think that uh, I love to think about each one maybe as a little map to, like, the history of that place, you know, the kind of image it would create. And then uh, I think that there's all kinds of other stuff that you'd find around the shop, like you were saying, that drawer of type uh, that doesn't match anything else. Well, it would also pull open the whole drawers of type where everything would be broken. And I would throw that on the page and I would use it. And so I would kind of give it a second life where it's like we would normally think of it as beyond function and then lay it back on the press. And again, you have that visual poetry element coming in. Um, and I, I love that there could be parallels with uh, all kinds of poetry. Let's talk about a lipogram, where it's like we're going to leave characters out. Maybe we just have a typewriter where the E doesn't work, and the, and the I doesn't work, and it's like, and I'm going to spend the whole time like cranking out poems without an E or an I. And that's the, the functional sort of glitch in that machine, and it'll provide a constraint, and the constraint will cause me to make different work. You know? No, that's important, the constraint thing, and it's like, there's a lot of amazing things about being able to design things digitally. But uh, but I think like that's why people are like you have to now you have to choose your you now you have to like embrace something to give yourself a constraint because it's not there automatically in some way. I mean there still are constraints, but it's so much less constraint than it's ever been. Agreed. And I think that you see people doing that. Um, like we described the letterpress artists that get sick of the grid and move to some other thing. Even digital artists, when they're producing work now, I think some of them have started to embrace the glitch. where They're just sort of like, look what happens in Illustrator every time I do this. And they might make a small body of work based on it. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. As, as free as they are, there are glitches there. But instead of that being that's the thing you're building your whole design around instead of, you know... In you, could, yeah, you could make of, it the linchpin yeah, yeah. instead of, like, <laughs> making it, you know, sort of the, the mar on the page. I'm, like, really in love with, like, the handmade graphics, you know, and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm really in love with, like, the idea of, you know, all this stacks of newsprint we're sitting around right here and looking at this stuff, uh, even going back to Harper's, but, but, uh, but mostly in the local colloquial papers, mm -hmm. you know, when you're considering, you know, a paper from the 1890s or 1880s and you're, and you're looking at the different ads and different styles that, that they used, you know, some of it's real train wreck, you know, the, the front, the front of it, it's real, you know, it's like, it's got, you know, t 12 different typefaces on one front or more. Mm -hmm. And, and then, and then, but like, you know, um, you start to see some of this stuff and you say like, wow, okay, that was hand cut or that was hand drawn or that was cut. And there's, there's more uh, like a colloquial feel. So it's like, to me, it's always interesting. Like, uh, 
considering how something did come into the genesis you know like you could look at you could look at you know that that sort of typesetting and then then move it into photo typesetting and then move it into photogravure and then move it into rotogravure and then you know what i mean so there's also like this real engaging way of understanding too sort of like the the history of type through i mean it, it typesetting and doing it this way it puts you in touch with a different understanding of the history of printing as well it really does and i think that when i look at those old pages all the papers that we're surrounded by now i think the exact same thing it's like they're not all winners you know what i mean Definitely and it's like not. in what you have are um you know it's the legacy of tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of mostly anonymous artists and craftsmen now they were cranking out a lot of that work and i find a lot of those image blocks still in print shops um where could just be a drawing of, say, a little kid with a wheelbarrow or who knows what, but it's <laughs> yeah. like someone made that, someone often illustrated it, then carved it into boxwood, and then it was made into a copper plate for printing, and I'm never going to know that craftsperson's name. Like, it's never going to come up, and uh, at the same time, I do have to look at it and understand it as a building block in the history of sort of graphic design. And like you said, there's these successful elements, right? Let's think about this in terms of evolution, where it's like, just like in the evolution of plants and animals, there's really successful traits and they're going to get passed on. Well, it's the same thing, I think, in terms of like visual language and pre like presentation. Um, so when you look at a newspaper now, there's things that still survive. There's a headline and there's a byline, and these things have, you know, uh, the really solid function. They work really well. But then there's the layout of the page, um, illustrations, and then it's really cool to think about how these things changed over time. Sometimes we look at things, right, from 300, 400 years ago, and in my brain I'm like, how does this even work? Like, the information seems presented incorrectly to me. It has, a, yeah. it has an incorrect yeah. visual yeah. grammar. And now I look at pages and almost everything makes sense to me, but I think this happens to um, even, I would say, older people that, are, people that are presented information on the internet now. They don't know it, where to look. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's there's like, no visual grammar to it. And uh, I think that... Well, but, well, yeah, and just badly designed websites are like that too, where you're like, yeah. I don't, I understand right. how this is put together. Like, that's a big part and of And at the like, end of the day, you have to think UX about... UX design, right? You know, like, that yeah. evolutionary sort of aspect. It's like, what, what were they missing that used to work that's no longer there? Yeah. You know? And it's like, and should yeah. borrow those traits? Or that maybe it didn't work at the time, but would work really well now. They I, were just know, at the that, wrong time or something. I call that know? surplus futures. <laughs> <laughs> like these surplus futures that we have where we, you know, we can look to the past again mm -hmm. and, and use maybe like some best practices from, from back then, yeah. you know? I've got this, like, crazy experimental science manual. It's like, it's like experimental science, like, uh, volume one and two. Mm -hmm. And it's, like, Victorian, Victorian era experimental science. So it's, like, kind of sort of like um, the dawn of electricity, mm -hmm. you know? So it's, it's, like, the beginning of light bulbs mm -hmm. and the beginning of arc welding and the beginning of, you know, like, um, uh, understanding how the voice makes a wave. And, like, the, you know, it's the beginning of all that stuff. Yeah, so it's, yeah. like, it's, like... The, the the experiments are very they're very analog in a way of like it's a lot of gas and fire and mirrors and moving pendulums and things you know it's like very like it's you know almost medieval in its construction yeah but it's Victorian guess, yeah right. you know what I mean Absolutely. it's like the end of that era so what are we gonna say from that 
What do you mean? <laughs> I thought that was where you're going. That this was some surplus future. We could take something. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. no. So the whole point. Yeah, the whole point of that is. Yeah, the whole point of that is. Uh, sorry, the whole point of that is like. The whole point of that is that there are a lot of things like in our past that we haven't been able to look at yet. Yeah. That are like these. Like. I'm not trying to get like alternate dimensional on it, but like kind of in a certain way, like alternate dimensions of what could have been yeah. or what still yeah, can be. Yeah, in, yeah. in some cases, what still can be used again in the future. Right. And I think it, what it provides is additional trajectories, right? So like we could think of that instead of, and it takes it a little farther away. Surplus from maybe futures, like, additional sur- trajectories. Right, because the surplus futures thing sounds so sci-fi, but additional trajectories would be like, imagine when, uh, you know, during the 20s or something, sort of Asian-inspired things really take over in like just post-Art Nouveau and like when Art Deco takes over. And then... Uh, Imagine if we were to go back and look at that now, how we would reuse it. Or imagine if we were to um, go back and source something else. The, the reason that I mentioned this is because I was just at Loyola, and there's this great ex- exhibition in the special collections that's all old trade cards. <laughs> and um, those trade cards were for businesses, you know, whether you were yeah. a printer or a photographer or whatever. They were business cards, but they were fancy and each one is this perfect little capsule of design uh, form and content but then in addition to that there were all these reference books and all the reference books were imagery um, and some of them um, really just based on different cultures so you'd have pages and pages of Greek designs and pages and pages of Egyptian designs and pages and pages of Asian designs and they really go into detail where a lot of them would be clothing patterns some of them would be from architecture on and on and that's what I think about now because as designers and artists, whether you're a letterpress printer or anyone yeah. else, now you can go back to that and you can be like, what if I'm going to re- resurrect you know, Persian patterns 3,100 years later? And or even if you don't resurrect them exactly, there's something, whether you're using that as an inspiration or abstracting some piece of it in some way absolutely. or something, and you see there's like culture the encoded in that like and you so you're picking some of that up subconsciously a lot right. of the time without even recognizing it right you, yep. you we remember all those patterns that we've seen i mean that works in poetry too that's a lot of how poetry works like you're yep. absolutely you're taking those patterns but placing them out of context so they're sort of unfamiliar but they're still kind of familiar without you realizing it at the same time, right? Yeah, and it's, I think that um, in terms of visual poetry and those other things, like I said, going back, and if you look at the futurist work and the constructivist work, and you're like, well, you know, obviously here's this sort of original presentation, but it's not really, but it was the most original that you had seen, and then you're like, where do I take it from here? And then you can go back and you can dive back into those reservoirs, you know, um, regardless maybe of their cultural affiliations and do the same thing and create another trajectory and another one. And another yeah, one. yeah, yeah. So there really is that sort of bottomless reservoir. Um, and what's interesting about it is that I get access to it every single day in touching the actual objects. You know, if we want to think about this North American trip that I've taken, um, working with things anywhere from 250 years old, you know, right up till modern times, and I get to touch the physical instances of them, yeah. and then resurrect them, you know, I get to make a print that somehow incorporates those things and tries to make it new again, you know, a lot of times you can do it with palette, sometimes you have to do it with form, but I think that that's what you're doing too, so I'm, I'm sort of creating that additional trajectory again for a piece that might not, might not have been used in 100 like years. Like print a tractor or neon pink? 
Exactly. You got it. It's that simple sometimes. It really is. Yeah. Right, like bringing something back, but like with some pizzazz, with mm-hmm. a new type of thing, in a new type of way. Yeah, and I am not above doing something that simple sometimes, where it's just like an image of like a cow, and like you print it in neon green and purple or whatever, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's all, it's it's like the placement. That sounds very Mardi Gras. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think those colors got stuck in my head it's for the, being the, It's here. the Boeuf Gras and in Mardi Gras colors. Yeah. But, uh... Do you have something else you're trying to do? Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm just thinking about a thousand different things, you know, just like. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, this is a good you're conversation. It just got me. Well, it's just, no, it's yeah. just got me thinking about, you know, how we, how you know, we, uh, we engage with visual poetry and and how we take it there with, um, you know, set and mm-hmm. with typewriters and with stencils and with stamps and the combination of those things. And then, and then, you know, like how, like, you know, like I'm working on a project now where it's involving, you know, digital printing plus letterpress, you know, so there's like all these different ways that you can mix those forms, you know, mm-hmm. and the form, you know, and you can stay constrained in, in one style of printing or, you know, you could really break it open. And I think it's, for me, the bold futures are there too with you where you said, uh, people using things for printing that maybe weren't meant to be printed or things that could just as long as it's the right height, well, like you can print it. If it's the right height, you can print it. Yeah. So things like that and, and uh, uh, <laughs> looking at just different processes and merging those processes and, you know. To me, it's almost more um, compelling when it's done with what I would consider visual representations of language even more than imagery. So say I'm in the letterpress shop and I'm trying to work with type, so I'm working with just letter forms uh, and trying to present them in a new way or do something interesting with them, something engaging. One of the things that I love about language and visual representations of language is that it feels like the most plastic of all things. So we're pattern makers as humans and we're pattern recognizers because we're pattern makers. And when I see language, for me, English, and the sort of characters that I'm familiar with, they can be distended and distorted and really just completely destroyed sometimes, and I can still recognize them or I will still try to recognize them. And other than maybe people can make arguments about the face and sort of things like that, there's nothing that's that plastic, you know? A lot of times if you were to blow out an image of a dog and make it completely 100%, you know, what it wasn't, I might not recognize it. No, it would be hard to. But if it's the letter A... There's a really you strong chance could. that I'm going to recognize it. And that's what I love about it. And that's what makes language sort of like that endless repository to me. And that's what makes it that thing that you can always go back to, you know. No, that's a great point. As a, yeah, <laughs> as, as a base that's structure, true. as a scaffolding, sort of like the interior of the architecture. Exactly. You go even deeper into the center. Yep. I'm sure we could keep going, but... It's a good point. To this is a, this, that might be a good point to end on. Hey, no, uh, thanks. But that was a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. I'm glad I came back. Uh, do you have anything you want us to plug? or? or? Um, I'm still going to be on the road, technically, on what I call the Itinerant Printer Book Tour. Um, you can go to the website. It's just itinerantprinter.com, and you can pick up a copy of the book. 
uh, from there you also get led to a lot of prints that I made along the way and uh, if you follow me on social media everything's just itinerant printer on Facebook and Instagram and you can see where I'm at now where I'm going next and sort of what's coming up in the future and beyond that I might take the whole project global in 2020 and go uh, check out print shops around the world oh, wow. so That'll be interesting <laughs> keep your eyes peeled for that and nice. see whether or not I can pull it together so. <laughs> well cool well, great. Thanks for coming, man. Yeah, thank you, guys. Glad to have you, Tom. Sadie, 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 Sadie.